Right, hello everybody, and welcome to another episode of Affair Roundup. I'm your host today, Carl Mungazi, and I'm joined on the panelists by first-time panelist Jack Harrington. Hey, Carl, how are you doing? I'm fine. Good to have you. Good to have you. Yeah, great and to be here. Awesome. And our guest today is Tyler Hawkins. How you doing? Thanks for having me. So, Tyler, let's just start off by maybe you telling us a bit about yourself and obviously why you're famous. <laughs> sure. So I'm, I'm Tyler Hawkins. I'm a senior software engineer at Adobe. Uh, nice. I've been doing front-end development for about seven years now and blogging and tech writing for the last year and a half. I don't know that I'm necessarily famous. Uh, don't you I, now. <laughs> there you go. But, but I do enjoy blogging and writing and it's it's opened up some opportunities and, and given me a chance to talk to people like you guys. Awesome. This episode is sponsored by Sentry. Sentry is the thing that I put into all of my apps first thing. I figure out how to deploy them, I get them up on the web, and then I run Sentry on them. And the reason why is because I need to know what's going on in my app all the time. The other thing is, is that sometimes I miss stuff. I'll run things in development, works on my machine. We've all been there, right? And then it gets up into the cloud or up on a server and stuff happens, stuff breaks. I didn't configure it right. AWS credentials, something like that, right? And so I need to get the error reporting back. But the other thing is, and this is something that my users typically don't give me information on, is I need to know if it's performing well, right? I need to know if it's slowing down because I don't want them getting lost into the Twitterverse because my app isn't fast enough. So I put Sentry in, I get all of the information about what's going right and what's going wrong, and then I can go in and I can fix the issues right away. So if you have an app that's running slow, you have an app that's having errors, you have an app that you're just getting started with, go check it out at sentry.io slash four, that's F-O-R, sentry.io slash four slash react, and use the code react roundup, that's all one word, to get three months of their base team plan. Great, so obviously the kind of main thrust of today's show would be your article on um, pin code and React. But I guess before we kind of go into that, let's just maybe delve a bit deeper into your background and to how you got into tech and how you got into um, your kind of job now and um, yeah, how it's been for you so far. Sure. Yeah. So I have a bit of a, a non-traditional tech background. I didn't have a, a degree in computer science or anything like that. For a long time, I was actually a psychology major for oh, about wow. two and a half years. Uh, I was pretty intent on you know finishing up my bachelor's and going to get a master's or a PhD and doing some form of counseling. But about midway through that, I'd taken some statistics classes. Those are some, some required classes just when you talk about doing research and psychology. And I really enjoyed the statistics part of it and kind of the more hard science as opposed to the, the soft or social science of psychology. Um, so I started getting really into that. And then stats actually kind of created a nice segue into coding and programming. Statisticians will often use programming languages like R or SAS or even just SQL for managing data in a database. And so that was really where I first got introduced to coding. I just remember learning R and, and seeing how we could create you know, these simulations uh, with just a few lines of code. And it was super cool to me. Or you could write a few lines and generate this beautiful graph just out of literally just a few lines of code. So that was really exciting for me. And so at that point, I was almost, I think I was, I think I was in my second semester of my junior year. So if I was to switched to computer science at that point, I would have had, you know, probably three more years just to get my bachelor's degree. So figured I'd, I probably wouldn't do that. So I stuck it out with statistics. That's that's officially what my degree is in. 
But at the time, I was I was working part time at a tech company called Qualtrics. Um, they were a software as a service company. When I was working, just doing uh, just doing tech support for them as a product specialist, so a lot of just troubleshooting, problem solving, and whatnot. But that provided a really nice in afterwards. You know, I told them I'm I'm looking for a software engineering job, so it's just a question of can I can I do that here or do I need to go look elsewhere? So they offered me a job uh, working on our professional services team, just doing custom one-off work for clients, uh, just building neat little small projects. They were often you know, like a week or two projects at a time. So pretty small scale. Uh, but it was a good introduction to a lot of, I guess, unique, unique problems to solve. Uh, and then from there, I've, I've worked at a few other companies. I've worked at uh, an e-commerce company called Unique, a ed tech company called Instructure, Workfront that uh, works as an operational system of record. And then Workfront was recently acquired by Adobe uh, back in December of 2020. So now here I am at Adobe. Wow, Adobe. I love Adobe. I used to work at Macromedia before I became Adobe, and it's a oh, fantastic cool. company. Yeah, really great yeah. place to work. Yeah, they're a great place. It's a good. Yeah. So when did you when did you start with React? Yeah, with React was let's see, early 2017. So it's been been about four years now. Fantastic. Sort of looking into your article, I'm I'm curious as to your take on TypeScript and how that might change this clean coding approach. <laughs> Sure. So I think, I mean, clean code applies regardless of whether you're writing TypeScript or just plain vanilla JavaScript. I've used TypeScript in past jobs. We're not using it right now, at least in in the repos that I primarily work in. I know other places at the company are. I don't know. I I still have mixed feelings on it. I, I, I enjoy the type safety. I enjoy that it's explicit about the data type and that it provides these static analysis and static type checking and error checking to prevent you from using unexpected data types. There is also a lot of complexity that stems from it, especially if the types aren't maintained properly. You might have like a complex type or maybe an object with lots of different properties. And then people start, you know, slowly how code goes and it gets bigger and bigger until it becomes all this spaghetti code. Now you have these spaghetti types that people are trying to override and whatnot. So so if you're going to use TypeScript, I think you have to be very, very devoted to it and, and make sure it stays nice and, and maintained. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I think I actually used your article. Not looking at it, I was actually trying to, um, at work, trying to set some kind of guidelines regarding front-end development. Because when I joined initially, the company was trying to migrate from Angular to React. So for the last two years, we've been doing that. And then we started working on a new project recently as well. So then I think, okay, in order for us to be able to kind of move faster in the future, we need to have kind of a guideline for front-end development and all the good stuff. And I actually, actually read your article, looking at it now. And one thing that I've always kind of struggled with per se is obviously when it comes to clean code, it's very subjective, right? What is clean for you for somebody else is a mess. Right. So when you come to think about clean code, how do you kind of set maybe your kind of guidelines and your and your boundaries? Okay, even though what I've written for me is what is clean, however, are there principles you kind of use that are wider and and across the whole field are usable? In this, in yeah, this absolutely. So that's a good point. Is that clean code is is pretty subjective. To me, I guess how I would define clean code is just code that's easy to read, it's simple to understand, it's neatly organized, and that really lends itself to making it easier for future developers to pick up on the code. You know, they can instantly dive into the code base and understand 
It also makes it a lot easier to refactor or extend the code later as you're you know, building out new functionality as the app evolves and grows. But you're right, in doing that, like it's, it's a pretty subjective principle, right? Or a subjective idea of, okay, what, what, what makes clean code and what's not? And so I, th- I think that's important to call out, right? Especially like I've, I've written this article of some things that I find helpful when writing React code, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll find it helpful. You might have very different, very strongly held opinions uh, that contradict my own. And that's, that might be okay, right? There, there might not be a right or wrong answer. But even, even with that, like there definitely are still some generally accepted principles, not just in React, but across all programming languages, right? Like it's, it's pretty commonly accepted that we should use clear variable names instead of just naming your variable T. It should be, you know, whatever <laughs> time or whatever, whatever you're representing, right? Or rather than having, a comment that says increment counter by one. Let's just have our code be explicit and clear to write that, right? So there there still are some generally accepted principles when it comes to writing clean code. Yeah, so with your article, what made you want to write that and actually publish it? I'm assuming there was something that happened maybe in your kind of, in your own development that made you want to actually make this article, write it down and then obviously share it because um, it's, it's a big thing, I guess, to kind of say, okay, this is what I think is clean code. Right, and then people read that and then discuss and say, I agree, I don't agree. But what, what was the kind of beginnings of the article for you? Yeah, so I'm a big fan of reading just like the, the classical tech programming books. Um, so I'd, I've read Clean Code by Robert Martin, Refactoring by Martin Fowler. Those are probably the two biggest ones just when it comes to, yeah, Clean Code and Refactoring, as their titles say. And rightly so like these books focus more on general principles that would apply to any programming language i think the original refactoring was written with java examples and then they recently released a second edition in i think it was like 2019 but that's been re-updated to all be written in javascript which was super nice for me as a front-end developer but so all these principles that they've that they've outlined are more general programming sort of language agnostic principles, right? They should be true regardless of whether you're front-end or back-end or Python or C++ or whatever, right? And so in thinking about that, I wanted to sort of get more specific of, okay, we have these general principles and now in my job, I'm primarily writing React and so are hundreds of thousands of other developers. Um, so how can we take these principles and make them even more specific of like, how do we how do we distill these into what makes React code clean for our very specific use case? So that was sort of the intent. And then the other part of it is like, there are, you know, useful automated tools you can use. So things like ESLint to establish best practices. So that enforces the consistency. Uh, you can use tools like Prettier for formatting code. So now you don't have to have arguments anymore of, should we have semicolons or no semicolons or trailing commas or no trailing commas? You can just pick one and have prettier format it for you. So those are super helpful and essential tools. But then there's also still things that like aren't necessarily enforceable, right? So like if you think about a clear variable name, like a tool like prettier ESLint can't tell you, yes, that variable name makes sense to a human, right? That's more subjective and is where people get involved. And so that's kind of where my article is more focusing is, is not not the uh, syntactical differences, but more just what makes this understandable for a human. So when I'm looking at your code, it's interesting to see you're 
creating these closures inside the component. Have you looked at things like use callback and, and use memo? And what's your take on those? Yeah. So use callback and use memo. So those are really handy React hooks, right? So working with function components. And they're both essentially memoization techniques, right? So where you can take some, some value that's expensive to compute and memoize it so that you're not constantly recalculating that. And so those can come in handy when you are realizing that you've had that you've that you're having performance issues. A pretty commonly accepted idea is that you don't want to prematurely optimize your application, right? And sure. so for the most part, I tend to avoid use callback and use memo until I recognize that it might be a problem because there's an overhead to that, right? When you when you memoize something and you have this cache that's created, that does take some overhead. And so if you're trying to memoize everything, you actually will have worse performance than if you <laughs> hadn't, right? So there's a fine line to, to draw. Um, and so yeah, the, typically the advice is just don't until you realize like, hey, this is behaving pretty slowly. Then let's go figure, figure out what we need to go memoize. Sure. Oh, yeah. And also I'm looking at your browser as well. One thing I, I actually start do now was actually before I used to use a lot of kind of like and and for example operator uh, and instead of using a ternary and I think I also saw an article by Kenzie Dodds about the same thing saying that actually it's better to have the ternary as opposed to sometimes this kind of um, operator so I think it's good because for me my philosophy has always been underpinned by I read this comment in a book by Kyle Simpson which was the You Don't Know JS series. Yep. And he said that developers write code for the developers, not for the computer. So your, your code will be read by either yourself in, in tomorrow or in a few months' time or in a year's time or your colleagues. So therefore, always try to write code that makes it easier for you, you in the future or your colleagues to come in, look at it, understand it. And actually get it working. And it's something I've actually seen when I was looking at the source code for React, for example. I came across that they use variable names are very explicit and quite long, right? Which for me looks quite odd. But actually, it helps you actually make sense of what's happening because even though the name for the variable might, might be quite long and explicit, actually, it makes it easier to work out what's going on. So I think on that front, definitely, um, that's how I can approach my clean code and try to write my code in that way where I'm trying to say, okay, I want to communicate to my colleagues my intention or maybe try to make it clear that I'm trying to do X, Y, and Z and only add comments when I'm doing something which maybe is not a best practice, but because in this particular example, it's the best way and actually works. So that's how I kind of approach it. I don't know if you've also had a similar kind of viewpoint and how you do your code as well. Yeah, absolutely. I can't remember who said it. I, I want to say it was like Kent Beck, but some, somewhere along the lines of anyone can write code, a computer can understand. It's a lot more difficult to write code a human can understand, right? And then another really important principle is that code is read a lot more often than it is written. You know, like in my day-to-day -day job as a software engineer, I will spend a lot of time doing code reviews prior to merging code. Um, I'll spend time reading through the code base as I'm trying to, you know, troubleshoot or debug some issue that I'm working on, right? That that someone may have written eight months ago. You may spend your time in meetings. And so if you look at like how often you actually spend time writing code, like 
it's probably like 10 to 20% of my day is, is actually writing code versus reading code or, or discussing, right? So, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of value in writing this clean code and making it understandable because that's, that's a majority of your time and your, your coworkers time. Yeah. Also looking through your code, it's interesting. I'm looking at the undefined props one and where you are sending in handle click. And it's interesting. Have you looked at the optional chaining operator question mark dot and just come out? Well, I guess last couple of years. I have. Yep. It's the optional yeah. chaining that was in the ES 2020 release. Right. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I think that could actually be a lot easier here. Yeah, we basically just question mark dot on the invocation of handle click. And, and there you go. It's, if it's there, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah, the optional chaining is great when it comes to, uh, yeah, being uncertain of, of whether a, a certain property or method exists on an object. Absolutely. It definitely helps, like, as you say, like clean out the code so that, you know, if you have like a deeply nested thing in a structure, you know, data.firstName or data.name.first or something like that, you can easily just say, okay, if it's there, then it's this. And if it's not, then you can back off and get to whatever your default value is. And it definitely pairs it down from those nasty nested ifs we have to use, used to have to do. Absolutely. So with clean code, what impact have you seen in your work personally, or maybe in your teams, when you've tried actually use these principles? Have you seen, let's say, a, a an improvement in productivity as the code become much easier to work with over time. What have you seen impact-wise from what you've actually been sharing in your article? Yeah, absolutely. So there has been a lot of benefits as far as like even just discussing these things, right? So like if we were to go through this and do like a team training or something, right? And just just having a shared understanding of of certain principles or, or styling conventions that we agree on, uh, I think is huge, right? Because now we're all using the same language. We're using the same terms. Uh, we're writing code and hopefully mostly the same way, right? And so that makes it very easy for it to transfer from one person to another. You know, if, if I'm reviewing your code, I don't have to get used to your style. And then I have to get used to Jack's style as I review his code, right? We're all, we're all kind of writing the same way. So there's a lot of value in that. And then even just like trying to pick a specific principle and focus on it for however long, a few weeks or a month, or whatever. We've seen a lot of value in that. So for instance, this isn't one, actually, I think it is mentioned at the bottom of the article, but just like extracting logic out into a clearly named function, you might have like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a good example, but basically just a, a whole bunch of conditions, right? So you might say like, if condition one and condition two and condition three or condition four or five, then do this thing. And at some, like, it may be clear to the developer when they're writing it of like, why I'm writing this if statement. But at some point, like the the intent of that can be can be misunderstood or misinterpreted, right? Maybe that's not well documented, or that's lost. And so there's a ton of value in just like it's extracting that condition out into a function or into a variable that says like this is check for user or whatever, right? Like this is why I am doing all these conditions in this if statement. Anyway, so that was that was just a simple example of something we had focused on of of okay let's let's start extracting this code into functions and as we do that like the code becomes a lot more i guess self-documenting and a lot more easy to understand right because now you've got this code extracted out and so now you basically just have high level steps of like okay i'm going to check if the user is logged in then i'm going to fetch their user data or avatar or whatever right so you have these very clear steps that's almost like i mean it's not pseudocode but it's it's a lot more human readable to just read like here are these three functions that are being executed as opposed to 
digging through a hundred lines of code of, of, you know, this is what's actually going on underneath the hood. So building on Carl's questions. So when you are going through these with your team, you know, these, these principles, how do you define, decide when you say, okay, this is, this one's really important. Or, you know, somebody pushes back and they're like, oh, I, I wouldn't do it that way. I would do it this way or something like that. How do you de- decide, okay, this is a really important one. This is the one I'm, you know, willing to go to town on, you know, versus eh, we can agree to disagree on, on that. How do you make that? How do you weigh those choices? Yeah, it's a good question because software engineers in general, I feel like we're, we're pretty pedantic people and we like, no, we, we have very strongly held opinions about things that really don't matter. Right. <laughs> no, it sounds like this is, <laughs> ringing a bell (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) but honestly like when it comes to that kind of stuff like i feel like it's i mean it it doesn't have to be complicated you can have a discussion of okay i i like it i like writing it this way you like writing it that way we can talk about if if there actually is a value or a benefit to doing one over the other if there is right like hopefully you can have a discussion and show like okay this is clearly better it provides whatever better performance or, you know, whatever it is, right? Like this is objectively better. And if it's not, if it's a question of, do you like semicolons or no semicolons in JavaScript? Like to me, it doesn't matter. Like let's just pick one and we'll go with it because really probably what's more important than the standards that you do pick is just that you have a standard and that you enforce it. And that comes back to just like the ESLint and prettier tools, right? You can configure those. So just pick a standard and and go with it. It honestly doesn't matter. Just be consistent. Yeah, I couldn't agree so, more. Honestly, my when people ask me, what's your favorite linting standard? It's like whatever is in the ESLintRC and is managed by Prettier and does it when I hit save. That's that's where I'm at. You know, so if you want to do semicolons, you do you. <laughs> Whichever. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Yeah, so on that, with React, in your opinion, Tyler, do you think there are things about React that make it harder to write clean code or easier? For example, I know that in my experience, one of the issues that I come across or people say to me is, Okay, because React is so flexible, right? I can do one thing 10 different ways. So that, I guess, makes it harder to have a clean code because I, I could maybe spend time working on this particular style of programming in React. I join you, and then you're working on this style of programming in React, and we're kind of clashing. But I mean, from your movie point, are there things that make it harder in React to be clean code and things that make it easier to encode? Sure. That's a good question. I don't know if I would say that it makes it harder to write clean code, but I do get where you're coming from, right? Is like React is is somewhat unopinionated. Like if you were to look, you know, maybe the differences between React and Angular, like React is presented as a UI library, whereas Angular is presented as a UI framework, right? And so Angular is very opinionated as to this is the Angular router that we use and this is the Angular animation library that we use, right? But with React, we don't have that at all. We have to choose between what state management system are you going to use? Is it going to be the context API or Redux or something else? You know, what are you going to use? Yeah, yep, yep. Those those are the big ones. Um, 
what are you going to use for CSS stuff? Is it going to be emotion or CSS modules or tailwinds? So there are tons of different opinions or options out there, I should say. And so, I mean, that's almost a different discussion to me is like, you know, how, how, do you, how do you choose the right tool? How do you make decisions as, as an organization? But regardless of what tool you choose, like, I think you can still write code in a clean way, you know, regardless of, of what solution that you're using. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. For me, I actually find the fact that React is flexible actually kind of makes it easier because you're not, you're not having to follow a path, right? Let's say like Angular or whatever. You're able to adapt to maybe what the team likes the best, uh, what the skill set is in the team. And um, I mean, that's for me anyway. Maybe other people would prefer to be handheld and be told, okay, this is, this is the way to do it. In other words, wrong. But personally... I like that about React that um, I don't have to always follow a path. I can kind of work my way there and I can then kind of learn from other people's um, ways as well. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how, how about I post it really. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would agree. I think it's fun to be able to kind of pick and choose, especially if maybe there's one solution that works best for your particular application. Like I'm just thinking of like going back to Redux and, and middleware. You might use something like Redux Thunk. That's honestly a very simple middleware. It's it's like literally like 13 lines of code. This yeah, is the whole package. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or you might have something like Redux Saga, which is far more complex, but far more powerful. And so, yeah, then it, then it kind of comes down to like, okay, we do have whatever these very convoluted actions and effects that we need Redux Saga to, to handle versus our our actions and in, in redux setup is fairly simple and thunk serves our needs um so yeah i think that flexibility is great being able to choose the right tool for the job the hard part is making that decision of what is the right tool right so yeah yeah so i think this is a good point to segue into your article on clean code of tests so i think we've covered like the clean coding of react for, for, for a bit so when it comes to test, how are these same principles applied to testing to make your code, again, cleaner, readable, and better to work with for you and your colleagues? Yeah. So with clean code with tests, so this was yeah a, a different article I had written. And this one focuses a lot more on uh, not so much in just making code pretty or coming to a certain standard, but, but more as far as like how you actually organize your code. So there are a lot of really important principles in there. So like, for example, structuring your tests, like it's pretty common to structure them in like this arrange, act, assert sort of set of groupings, right? Where you first set up your test fixtures and then you actually act on it, perform some operation, and then you assert that the expected behavior occurred. So, I mean, that's that's huge just as far as like writing very clear sections of your test. There are a lot of other principles as well. So things like using test object builders, so that helps, you know, uh, reduce the the amount of duplication in your code, so kind of keeping things dry there. And, and test builders, if you or the listeners aren't aren't sure what they are, they're, they're essentially methods that can be used to build commonly used objects. Um, so, for example, if you have like a user object or a whatever any sort of common object you're working with, rather than creating a new user every single time and having like twenty lines of setup code in each of your tests, you can define define these helper functions where you can essentially just create a new user with either using some default values or some overrides that you provide. So it really helps make it more maintainable so that you can just create a new user in one line of code as opposed to, you know, however many lines it uses to actually generate that object. I don't know how much more you want to go into. We've got we've got all sorts of things we could talk about with tests. 
I do love that first acronym that you have in there is that the test should be fast, independent, repeatable, self-validating and and timely. Could you talk to me a little bit about self-validating and timely on that? Yeah. So yeah, the whole the whole acronym first, so fast, independent, re- repeatable, self-validating, timely. That comes from I think that one's from Uncle Bob in uh in Clean Code. He's got a chapter on unit tests. But so when it comes to tests being self-validating, it's very important that tests either return as passing or failing as opposed to just returning you know, a message saying like here was the test output you know your your function returned 10 or returned. <laughs> oh not actually checking anything okay exactly yep and so like in the react world that's one of you know the big complaints of, of snapshot tests oh. when you are, are testing your components yeah everyone everyone hates snapshot tests right <laughs> um, but that's that's one of the problems of them is that snapshot tests are not self-validating they just tell you that something changed and now it's up to the human to verify of, okay, was this a correct change because I've changed something in the source code and therefore my snapshot test updated? Or is this an unwanted change? Did I accidentally modify something that I didn't mean to? And so again, it's it's not self-validating. The human has to provide some sort of judgment there. And often what happens then, I'm sure you know, is with snapshots is that the developer just says, yes, update and accept the changes. Right? And, now, and now we've updated our snapshots and we haven't really validated those at all. And so that's huge. And for the most part, I mean, test frameworks today are self-validating, right? You write a test and either passes or fails and it reports your test successes or errors. So that's mostly taken care of. But that's a, a hugely important principle that I think we might take for granted. And then your other questions, so you asked about writing tests Time, in a timely, timely, timely tests. manner. Yeah. And so this is a big one just as far as like, I think writing code responsibly. So to me, like, you shouldn't be writing any sort of code, really, whether it's a feature or a bug fix or whatever, without unit tests, right? Or or tests of some sort, right? Whether it's integration tests or end-to-end or whatever you need to, to adequately test it. Because when you write the tests alongside your production code, you have a better understanding of how the tests should function, or sorry, how the how the code should function, right? You have the product requirements. If you're working on some new feature, You've probably talked to the product owner and the UX designer, and you know the requirements. And so it's up to you to write the test to say, hey, this is how this feature should work, and this is the expected behavior. And the opposite of that, if you don't do that, is let's say you've written your code and and there are no tests. Um, I'm sure we've all worked places where testing was not a priority at the company. And so now we have this massive monolith here of, of code. And people are afraid to make changes to maybe core parts of the application. You've got like the, your authentication code or, or maybe you're an e-commerce company. So you've got your like actual checkout and order processing code. And, and people are terrified to touch it to make any change because they're afraid that they'll break it. And now users can't log in or they can't complete purchases and they're costing the company tons of money. And it's all because there are no tests there, right? The tests provide that confidence for you to be able to change your app and to refactor it and add new things in the future. Because then if the tests are actually in place, they'll tell you when you've broken something. And so as we're trying to play catch up then, let's say we're in that scenario where we don't have tests and now we're trying to increase the code coverage and, and make our application a little bit better. Now we might be missing some of those product requirements, right? We might have a general idea of what some the, the main functionality of the code is, is supposed to be doing. But we miss the nuance of all the product requirements and all the discussions that were had when that code was initially being written. And so when that happens, you'll have you know 
missed edge cases or just maybe a misunderstanding as far as the expected behavior. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we mentioned the dreaded snapshot test. And those tend for me to come in when I'm adding unit tests to older code. And the me that was me three weeks ago that wrote that code decided not to write the test or whatever. I'm like, I'll just snapshot it. It'll be fine. But yeah, when it's timely, right? You you say, oh, okay, one of the really important part here is the total when it's when you're trying to check out or whatever. And so, you know, you want to make a test that's specific to making sure that the total is right and not that like the entire component stack is exactly what you expected, which is what you're going to get from a snapshot. And that's why when you do the, the those auto updates, it's like maybe the, maybe the total changed and that was the bad thing, or maybe it was just some class name. And it's you can't really tell the difference unless you really drill down into it, look at the gift, diff, get diffs and all that. So I, I totally get why those two things are super important and they kind of work across each other. It's like, yeah, you got to get the right test and also write it right then because when you have it in mind, that's important. Absolutely. Yeah, and I guess also on testing, I'm looking at um, summary point number six, which is about edge cases and boundaries. And I feel that we sometimes either 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 go to extreme and we we develop for edge cases too much, right? Or we just forget about them at all. And I think that reminder that yes, actually, always try to think if I was like, how can I break my code, right? Or how can I break this feature? and test that kind of edge case where if that happens, if the stars align, if it's on a windy day, if the moon is up, (laughs) then (laughs) this can happen. So yeah, that's a a good point. So I guess a question which kind of ties these two together is, okay, so let's say I've heard your argument and I say, okay, okay, Tyler, I agree with you. Clean code is the way to go. I like your tips. I like your testing tips. However, one, how can I make this a day-to-day part of my workflow? Number one, and crucially, how can I then introduce it into my team, right? Because obviously this is a new way of working and it requires us to change our mentality, our workflow, but we, we see the benefits of it. However, how do we get from the theory in your article to actually the practical day-to-day coding of it? Yeah. So basically, how do, we, how do we take these principles and start implementing them if we're a team that, that hasn't in the past, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think code reviews are a very crucial part of this process and being diligent in code reviews. So if let's say your company was not as serious about tests and now, now they are, they want to write tests and increase the code coverage and whatnot. We need to actually put our money where our mouth is and, and make sure we do those things, right? And so if you, let's say I'm reviewing your code and you've checked in code and you haven't written tests, the responsibility is on me then as the reviewer to say, hey, the code looks good, but I can't approve this until you write tests, right? And so that's that's sort of the the human gate check or gatekeeper right there of, of doing that. And so that re- requires all of us to have this shared understanding, right? It doesn't work if Jack is over here and he'll approve your code no matter what. So you're just going to send all the MRs to Jack. (laughs) And so it requires kind of that team effort, right? So we have this shared understanding that, yes, this is what we do. We have tests. Another thing that I found very helpful when it comes to code reviews is just using like merge request templates or pull request templates, depending if you're a GitHub or GitLab user. But so those templates are essentially a checklist, right, of... Typically, when I create a merge request template for a repo, it would have something like, 
what's the description of what you're changing? You know, so give me a one or two line summary of what this is all about. Maybe a, a quick test plan of how someone could verify that this is working if they wanted to go manually check it out. And then there might be a checklist as well of like literally just have you written unit tests? Have you cross browser tested this? You know, if you support IE 11 or whatever, right? Have you made sure user facing text is translated if you support different languages or have you, you know, made sure that your, your code is accessible for screen reader users or keyboard navigation. So just having that checklist in place provides just a, a little nudge and a little reminder of like, okay, I've, I've checked in my code. Now I go through this checklist like, oh, okay, I didn't write tests. Let me go back and take care of that. Anyway, those, those are two small things that I think could help a lot. Have you thought about rolling this out at Adobe? And, and how would you think about doing that? Somebody's really big like Adobe. Yeah. So that's, that's a tough question when it comes to Adobe specifically, because, you know, Adobe has acquired a lot of different companies, right? They're made up of, of tons and tons of different technologies and platforms and whatnot. And so even though I'm working at Adobe, I'm still largely working within like the Workfront application that's now part of the Adobe cloud, right? And so uh, oftentimes the different applications or different product teams will operate pretty independently, right? So we might have different standards or different things, but we actually are rolling this out when it, when it comes to work fronts is we've, we've got these merge request templates in here, right? And, uh, you know, at least in, in the teams I've worked on, we're very strict and saying, okay, this, the, the MR does need to have tests included. So yeah, we've got, we've got a little bit of a success story there that we've, we've rolled this out and it's working well so far. So things are, things are good. Cool. Did you build a kind of internal community around advocating for that and trying to get that done, like within your team? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, we have, you know, team trainings that we do. We have lunch and learns that we will do as well. So, you know, we've, we've presented this at a lunch and learn and then gone through and, and added these merge request templates to different repos. So, yeah, it was, it was a, good, a good number of, or a good combination of just, you know, having these PSAs and these trainings and announcements as well as, you know, a group of people that will go in and do those things and actually enforce enforce those rules and principles. Awesome. So uh, a question here is actually was talking. So at what stage in your career did this become important to you? Would, it, would you say it was when you were when you were becoming um, mid to senior or when you were a bit more junior to mid? At what stage did you say, okay, you know what, actually, clean code is actually something for me now, which is very important as opposed to, I know it's good, but it's not that important to me. At the moment, at the time in time. Yeah, that's a good question. I'd probably in the more yeah mid level range. I would say I guess I'm I'm starting to would start to care more about the clean code. Honestly, as as a junior engineer, you know, at least for me, like I'm I'm just trying to get my work done. You know, like I I'm, I'm early yeah. in the I'm early in the or new in the field and early in my career, and you know maybe I'm struggling to even do whatever task is act, asked of me, right? And so I. I, I get this task done. I have this feature working and I go check in the code, right? And that's a mistake that that a lot of us make, you know, whether we're junior or mid or senior or whatever, is that we get the code working and then we stop, right? But that's that's like just the first half, right? So we should first get the code working and then we should, you know, make sure it's it's nice and clean so we could do whatever refactoring we need. Maybe we've written tests already because we're doing TDD or maybe... We're going to write tests now after the fact. Um, and then after that, maybe we do uh, performance testing and make it more performant, right? So I'm, I'm trying to remember who said this. I think it was Kent Beck again, but it was like, make it, what is it? Make it work, make it right, make it fast, something like that. 
anyway, so just like not stopping right in that process. And sorry, I feel like I'm going off on a tangent here from your original question. (laughs) Yeah. Because I'm, it's something I find myself thinking about a lot more is um, when I start off IQ, I I also have a non-tech background, right? So I came from journalism and um, learned how to program, got got my first job. um, And I was just, okay, I have to get this working. I have to understand how that. I have to work out what to do in the first place, right? And once it works, I'm happy, I move on. <laughs> and then now, as I've been in the field for a few years now, I'm now beginning to think more about, okay, what can I do to make the team better or to make the team perform better, right? And it's these things like clean code, which are not very easy to measure, right? You can't measure how clean code maybe helps the team, but it's intangible and you know it's there because you then see over time that the code base has become cleaner to work on. It's easy to write to write bug fixes, to write features, because a new dev can jump in and within a short amount of time, kind of get up to scratch. So yeah, I think it's one of those things where it takes time to actually begin to appreciate just the impact having clean code can do on your team, your company, and you, you as a dev as well. And I think, yeah, it's a thing where it, I think you need to make, I think you need to have made those mistakes before and written code, which is a mess, right? And then try to go back and unpick it and say, oh, okay, now I see why my clean code is, <laughs> is, is needed as opposed to trying to jump into it straight away. Yeah, absolutely. Like that experience is pretty key, right? Like having worked at places, just going back to testing again, like having worked at places that don't have tests versus places that have very good test coverage and a good principle, like there's a huge difference, right? Of, you know, having actually been in that situation of, okay, I need to go modify our authentication code. Like, okay, cross my fingers. I'm going to go merge this. Like, I hope, I hope it works. Right. As opposed to my tests are passing. I feel good about this. Let's submit the code. So like just having been there and having experienced that, like helps a ton of like, man, there's a huge difference just in my developer experience. And that, you know, makes a difference for, all of the engineers that are working at the company too. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot of folks who are looking for a path to go from like junior to senior to team lead and, and up, up that line. And one of the things that I think is really important is having a care about the code quality and putting in that time and, and up-leveling the rest of the team. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know that's specifically something yeah, that a lot of companies look for in, in, in a, more of a senior engineer type role is, is not just are you an efficient individual contributor, but can you help make other people better as well, right? Can you mentor those people with less experience? Can you help them also have that same appreciation, right? That same appreciation for clean code and for testing and and taking pride in their work is a huge part of it, that mentoring. So um, just to kind of come to the kind of end of the discussion, I'd like to touch upon the fact that you've written quite a lot of articles and looking at your website, you've got a lot of kind of apps you kind of built. So clearly you have, um, I don't know how you do it, but clearly you have um, time to produce um, a lot. So I guess the question is, and as somebody also who has written a few articles there and there, what are your kind of tricks for being productive, right? So when it comes to planning your articles, how do you do it? Is there kind of a workflow you have for research, writing, editing, publication, promotion, right? And then also, 
looking at all these kind of demo apps you've got on your website, how do you also do that as well? Do you have a workflow where you're able to kind of push out and pump out all these apps and content, which obviously helps you as a, as a programmer, right? To learn new skills, sharpen your skills, and give you stuff for your articles as well. Yeah, so a lot to unpack in there. So let's start first with the with the demo apps and stuff. So <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I've I've built a decent amount of you know little side projects and pet projects. Um, I think on my portfolio, I probably have I don't know seventy or eighty projects on there, some demo apps and whatnot. A good chunk of those were from when I was first learning to code. So that was one of my strategies of uh, of actually teaching myself. So again, I I had that statistics degree and I. For the most part, I was generally self-taught, self-taught when it comes to coding. So I did a lot of online courses and you know watched Pluralsight videos and did free code camp projects and code academy courses and all that good stuff. And so really the best way that I find that I learn is by doing. And so oftentimes it was just like, okay, I want to figure out how this thing works. So we're going to build an app, right? As opposed to just reading a tutorial or watching a video, we're going to actually do this, right? So now I have the hands-on experience of, of how I can, you know, go build this, this feature or work with this new technology, right? So a lot of them were built just as like a, a personal learning experience. And then also to build up that portfolio, right? So again, not having a CS degree, I feel like, especially if first starting in your career, you have to almost kind of work a little harder to prove yourself, right? Of, I, I don't have this degree, but I can code, right? I can do it. And so having that portfolio to point to and say like, look, I built this. It's it's a full stack app and it has authentication and it does all these things, right? Sort of provides that proof that, that hopefully you at least have, have some understanding of, of what you're talking about and some some level of expertise. So that was you know a while ago when I, was, when I was first getting started. Nowadays, a lot of the apps that I'm creating are honestly for the articles. So maybe I'll be... Uh, working on some sort of proof of concept. Um, a few of my last ones in there, I think, were like GraphQL focused. Um, so I did one of like implementing a GraphQL API on top of an existing REST API. And I didn't just want like a boring, you know, to do app app. So I made a, a dad joke database. And uh, anyway, so it fetches the dad jokes and uh, has a GraphQL layer implemented. But so anyway, so, so oftentimes like getting more into these articles now, I've been writing for about a year and a half. And so oftentimes I'll be writing about, you know, either things that I'm passionate about. So like these articles with the React Clean Code and Clean Code with Unit Tests or things that I'm, you know, just interested in and learning about. So I've been, you know, studying GraphQL a lot lately. And so as, as, I'm, as I'm preparing to write these articles, I like to have a demo app to show people how we can actually use it. And so creating these apps is more just the preparation for the article of like, okay, how could we solve a problem of if we have an existing REST API and we want to move over to GraphQL, is it possible to, to, to kind of have them running side by side as opposed to just cutting over? And if so, how would you do that? And so the, the demo app sort of became the exploration of that sort of problem. Um, and then the article then is just a, an overview of, okay, what was the problem? How did we tackle it? And what did we learn from this? So really, they, they kind of just go hand in hand to support each other at this point. Yeah, I absolutely agree with all of that when when you talked about doing your own projects to learn stuff that is just absolutely so critical i mean it's not just you mentioned proof of expertise and it's not just to others it's to yourself right 
you hear a lot about imposter syndrome and people not feeling like they, you know, they're, they're, they've got the skills. Best way to make sure that you feel like you have those skills is to try it out and do it and, and make stuff. And it gives, it gives you a lot of pride as well. You know, a lot of people ask me, Hey, you know, how do I become a reactive? And it's like, well, you can watch a lot of videos, but you just got to do it. I mean, you can watch videos on axe juggling. It doesn't make you an axe juggler. And I wouldn't try juggling axes <laughs> after just watching some videos on it. You know, you got to go out there. You got to try stuff and build stuff. And then you'll get that confidence and you'll beat that imposter syndrome. And you'll feel like you belong in the business. Definitely. Cool. Awesome. So unless there's anything else you feel maybe we should touch upon, we can move to picks now. Sure. Let's go to picks. Hey, folks. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit, and you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Cool. So basically, uh, picks just basically where we just um, either choose like an article, podcast, or show, whatever that we just want to share. So I can start off um, with my pick, which actually is is actually based on the fact that I think I said earlier, I've been on the, um, annually the last week and a bit, and I've not been plugged in as I normally am. And it's been quite amazing just to have that refreshing time away from the screens and Twitter and blogging and all that, all that stuff. And so that's my pick that if you can try and at least like find uh, maybe a week or so where you just put your phone down, just go outside or whatever and just um, give your brain a research. And I quite enjoyed that. So I'll, I'll, I'll be definitely trying to do, to do more of that going forward. Uh, let's go to Jack. Yeah, definitely take a, take a week and or just take a day. Yeah. You don't have to code seven days a week. Code, code six, take that Saturday. Go for a hike. Clear your mind. My pick for this week would be Jotai. It's a state manager from Daishikato. And it's a re-implementation of Facebook's recoil. And it's really interesting. It's an interesting, different take on the state management by creating, you create these little atoms and they're interrelated. And then when one changes, the other update. And what's really cool about Jotai in particular is he's actually integrated it recently with Immer, which is an immutable library. So you can have an immutable atom and you can have an X state atom, which means you can have an atom that actually has a neat little state machine in it. It's very, very cool stuff. So I'm really excited about all of Daishikato's uh, state managers, but Jotai in particular is really pretty cool. Awesome. And then um, Tyler? Yeah, my pick. Uh, this will be totally unrelated, but I'm currently reading a book called Being Wrong by Katherine Schultz. Um, I'm about half, halfway into it right now, but it has been an excellent read so far. It is all about essentially the experience of being wrong, how you know all most of us have a, a pretty general idea that we are we are right most of the time, right? If we didn't believe the things we believe, we wouldn't believe them by definition, right? Um, yeah, and yet we're yeah. wrong all the time. and it's it's been a really fascinating read just into 
the the experience of being wrong and how we can deal with it a lot more. Like typically, when when we're wrong about something, we tend to feel upset or embarrassed or or angry at being proven wrong. Um, but but her whole book is you know more about embracing embracing being wrong and how we can learn from it. So it's been it's been a fascinating read. That's what being a programmer is all about, right? We're all we're very <laughs> wrong until it's right, you know, until it works. Everything is wrong up until then. So you got to be comfortable with being wrong 99% of the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I always say to people that um, programming is basically being paid to work stuff, to work stuff out, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, I think... Paid well, and, yes. Yeah, and for me, when that actually clicks, that essentially, I'm not being, I'm being hired to know things. They want me to use what I've learned to find out the best solution to whatever thing I'm working on, right? And for me, that when that clicked, it changed how I approached my work. I was now less scared of not knowing what I was doing and can be being more open to, you know what, this guy should be wrong, but that's fine because I'll be paid for actually saying, okay, this is wrong, but this is how you fix it. As opposed to going in thinking, okay, every single thing I do first time right is correct, which never, <laughs> never happens in our industry. Absolutely. And there's a lot of value in having that humility to to not think you're always right, that you're, you're okay with being wrong and maybe being proved wrong in the hopes of eventually getting it right, right? As a team, as opposed to just always being right. It's a great opportunity, you know, when you think about it, like you're, that means that you're learning and, and that's a great thing. Awesome. So um, Tyler, how can people get in touch with you if they want to say hello or ask me any more questions about Clean Code? Yeah. If you want to check out any of my articles, uh, I'm fairly active on Medium and Dev. I also write a lot on DZone and Hacker Noon, so feel free to check out anything there. If you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I think I'm the only Tyler Hawkins that works at Adobe, so should be able to find me there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm on Twitter as well. I honestly don't, don't tweet that much, so I'm not super active, but feel free to chat with me there if you'd like as well. Awesome. So yeah, I'll post the links to your various social profiles in the guest notes. So yeah, that, that's a little beat. So, but thank you so much um, for today, Tyler. It's really informative. Thank you for your time. And I'm definitely going to be going back to your clean code article and try to glean one or two more gems. And Absolutely. Kind of- thank you for sharing. That was great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. So that's it for today's show. Um, thank you so much. And um, see you next time. Thank you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.